Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Hello, EM Cases listeners. This is the first podcast release of 2016. Now, as I reflect on 2015, after 33 podcast releases, the creation of the Waiting to Be Seen blog, the first ebook, EM Cases Digest, the formation of new collaborations with the best evidence of EM group out of McMaster, Justin Morgenstern, the first 10 EM, and the Stars Air Ambulance Service out of Calgary, as well as planning the first ever EM Cases course in February, which is only a few weeks away from the time of this recording, I really want to thank from the bottom of my heart, and I mean... This would never have been possible without all of these people. The fine folks at SREMI, Howard Ovens, Bug Borgenvog, Shelley McLeod, and Shirley Lee for their support. The incredible EM Cases team for their hard work and dedication. The EM Cases advisory board for their guidance. The many EM Cases guest experts for their contributions and blinding brilliance. The foam world for their inspiration and beautiful global community. And of course, you the listeners of the podcast, and the readers of the website for your amazing support and feedback. I also wanted to tell you about a fantastic new project that was just launched on January 1st, 2016, that Teresa Chen, the co-host with me on the Journal Jam podcast, and Brent Toma, the med-ed gurus behind Boring EM. It's a new website called Canady EM, which is sort of a conglomerate of Canadian foam for practicing emergency docs. EM Cases plans on contributing to Canadian EM, and I'm honored also to be on their advisory board. So check them out at canadiem.org. Now, let's move on to decision-making in emergency medicine part two with the walking encyclopedia of EM, Walter Himmel, the brilliant bearded assistant program director of the EM residency program at U of T, Chris Hicks, and the head of QI at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, David Dushensky. This episode is sort of an extension of episode 11, Cognitive Decision-Making and Medical Error. If you're not already familiar with the basic concepts of cognitive decision-making, I encourage you to listen to episode 11 before you listen to this one. Then there's episode 62, Diagnostic Decision-Making Part 1, the first part of this three-series podcasts, where we reviewed the five strategies to help you master evidence-based diagnostic decision-making. Now, we're going to expand and integrate some of the concepts we learned in episode 11 and 62 by discussing cognitive debiasing strategies, mental preparedness, preferred error, anticipatory guidance, decision density, and decision fatigue. So Dr. Hicks is going to lead us into a deeper dive on how to understand cognitive biases like anchoring, framing effect, diagnostic momentum, and premature diagnostic closure, some cognitive forcing strategies, and metacognition stuff. So here we go with episode 75 on decision-making part two. A 57-year-old woman presents to the ED one evening at the end of the doc's shift who had been doing a double shift with the chief complaint of constipation. Her last bowel movement was five days ago, and she complains of pain in her lower back and lower abdomen, 
as well as some tingling in her legs. She was briefly examined by the physician, who didn't find anything remarkable on abdominal exam. He prescribed a stronger laxative and advised the patient to contact her family doctor for further follow-up. During the night, the patient was unable to urinate and went back to the emergency department. On exam, her lower abdomen appeared distended, and she was found to have a residual volume of urine of 1,100 cc's on catheterization. Her rectum was markedly distended with soft stool that required disimpaction. She recalled straining her lower back while lifting a heavy object five days earlier. The emergency physician suspected cauda equina syndrome, and this was confirmed on MRI. She was taken immediately to the operating room for surgical decompression. So Dr. Hicks, what are some of the cognitive biases that were present here that contributed to the first doc missing an impending cauda equina syndrome? It's always very challenging to try and interpret somebody's thought process post hoc, especially when you're separated from the ambient conditions in which we'll call this an error, um, a diagnostic error occurred. That being said, to me, that this case screams diagnostic momentum. Um, and I'm sure we've all seen this. Uh, patient shows up uh, at the triage desk complaining of flank pain. Uh, the triage nurse very appropriately writes down query renal colic because that's their suspicion. And then it gets to a secondary assessment who says, oh, I think he's got renal colic. And then you look at the urine because it's back before you see them and it has blood in it. And you think renal colic. And that case has a tremendous amount of diagnostic momentum in that direction. And you then end up missing the fact that the patient was hypotensive and they were a vascular patient and they end up having our abdominal aortic aneurysm. Um, so this case seems to have a ton of momentum in the direction of some uh, benign abdominal issue, particularly because the patient showed up and said, I'm constipated. Uh, and it can be pretty challenging to, to unmarry yourself from that uh, particular declaration, especially when it carries through uh, with the rest of the assessment. I do find it interesting, though, that there were some red flags on exam that seem to have been overlooked, the tingling in the lower extremities kind of being one that screams out uh, and the lower back pain. Um, you know, back pain in the elderly patient always being a bit of a red flag. Again, I, not knowing what the exact clinical circumstance uh, was surrounding the case, it's, there's, there, this suggests the interesting phenomenon of premature diagnostic closure. That is, even though you're presented with data that conflicts your diagnosis, uh, because you've come to a premature conclusion about the diagnosis, you choose to, not consciously choose, but you ignore case-relevant information because it doesn't support the diagnosis that you've arrived at. So the first doc, even though the patient said they had some tingling in their in their extremities, they probably just blew that off because there was such a diagnostic momentum towards belly pain, constipation, something to do with that. Yeah. And I mean, to say, to say they blew it off maybe suggests a conscious process. I mean, it, doesn't, it can be. You can choose to ignore things. I guess we do that all the time, probably to our own detriment to our patients. But this is more of a, of, of a subconscious process. This is not something that I think we're consciously aware of. We'll hear information and our brain will subtract it out because we've already made up our minds about what a particular situation represents. Um, and that relates to the notion of premature closure. Uh, and anchoring on a specific diagnosis. And then the manner in which information is presented to you has a lot to do with how you see the situation. That's just a sort of a, a fact of human nature. The bias that you might identify here would be the notion of uh, the framing effect. How a particular problem is framed has a lot to do with how you choose to see that problem. So a good example, and I think about this all the time when I'm reviewing cases uh, with, with residents and with house staff, uh, it keeps me up at night, this thought, actually, when uh, somebody who you trust and know and have worked with a lot comes to you 
and describes a 65-year-old patient with uh, cardiac risk factors who now, who's now is having ischemic sounding chest pain versus them describing that same patient as a patient who's having uh, tearing chest pain radiating to the back with a history of hypertension. I mean, that's the same patient and probably the same set of clinical parameters presented in two very different ways, and they conjure up two very different and competing diagnoses in an acute coronary syndrome and a dissection. Um, so this this case was framed in a way that certainly made it appear from the outset as if it was one diagnosis. And again, this sounds like we're being critical of this this uh, particular doc, but it's pretty easy under the under the right set of circumstances to fall to fall victim to all of these potential uh, pitfalls. What we need, um, in a very generic sense, is a way to sort of debias ourselves or unanchor ourselves from a lot of these particular um, reasoning pitfalls and biases. So it's safe to say that the more we learn about these kinds of biases, the more we're aware of them, then the less chance we are of making those cognitive bias errors. And if we employ some strategies, cognitive debiasing strategies, then the less likely we are to make medical error. Well, the answer to that is maybe. Um, the theory is that the more we know about cognitive error and bias, and this is an argument that past Crosscarry and others have made many times, the more we know about it, the more likely we are to be able to sort of pick up on it in our practice. And I, I think it's true, a certain, you have to be aware of how you think and how you, uh, where your sort of, your reasoning process can lead you astray. While that's true, there's not a ton of empiric evidence to say that now that we've taught people about heuristics and biases and errors that they necessarily perform any better, although I think it's actually probably true that they do. It's just kind of hard to demonstrate that. And then specific debiasing techniques, uh, things like metacognition, um, uh, cognitive forcing strategies, and that sort of thing, can be effective uh, depending on the circumstance at uh, deliberately forcing you to see the situation in a different way. Metacognition just being a fancy word for taking a, an active step back from any situation and asking yourself, what else could this be? Uh, a good example of a forcing strategy we use in, in emergency medicine all the time uh, is this notion that the most commonly missed fracture on an x-ray is the second fracture. That's that's just a forcing strategy um, that tells you once you see a fracture, you got to go looking for the second one and convince yourself it's not there. So that would be analogous to the patient who has chest pain and you decided it's an acute coronary syndrome, but you actively, this is one that I use not infrequently, you actively take the time to ask yourself, could this be an aortic dissection? And the answer could be quite quickly no, but if you don't ask the question, you're, you're never going to come up with the answer. Perception is not a passive process. Perception is an active process. So I think we all agree, if you walk into a wall or someone hits you in the head with a hammer, you're going to perceive that. But when it comes to perceiving the six points of a history, that's a very active process. If someone comes in complaining of constipation, and you frame it as a constipation question, and they then mention numbness of the legs, there's a good possibility you didn't hear it in the first place. Or if you heard it, your brain just got rid of it immediately. And of course, that's, uh, as Chris said, it's, it's a reflection of momentum. It's a, a reflection of premature closure. It's a reflection of not having a good heuristic. Now, in, in terms of knowing what your problems are, if, if you're aware of cognitive errors, being aware of the problem doesn't mean you're, that you're aware of the solution. Because knowing what the problem is and knowing what the solution is are two different items. We're going to get on to exactly that a little bit later on. But before we do, I just want to review some of the basics on cognitive decision-making that we went through in episode 11 uh, with Dr. Hicks 
and uh, Dr. Sinclair. Dr. Hicks, could you just review for us what type one or system one versus type one or system two thinking is and why it's important to know about? Sure. So uh, this is, it's, it's a, it's a model. It's a descriptive model to, to kind of unify what I think most cognitive psychologists agree is the type of thinking that docs go through when they're trying to analyze an unknown problem. And it describes uh, a system one, which is rapid and intuitive and based on experience uh, and intuition and gut instinct, if you want to call it that, uh, versus system two, which is more of a Bayesian analysis, uh, uh, a process of working through uh, methodologically through a differential with statistics and probabilities. And importantly, I think this is the key that maybe gets missed sometimes, is importantly how those two systems interact to come up with a balanced process for decision making. It's pretty easy to look at that model and say, well, okay, system one thinking is fast and it's intuitive and it's prone to error and it's affected by a lot of the things in, uh, that came up in this case. Um, your, your effective disposition at the time, your emotional state, are you fatigued? Are you stressed? Are you overworked? Do you like the patient? Do you hate the patient? What was your interaction with the patient just before that? All of those things. And it becomes tempting to say, well, then system one is garbage and we should probably avoid it. Having said that, System two thinking isn't perfect either. One, it's slow, it's deliberate, it's um, it's a real process. And I think if you applied that to every single patient you ever saw in the emergency department, you'd never get anything done. Furthermore, coming back to what we were discussing earlier, the process of looking at numbers and likelihood ratios and statistics and so on is and applying evidence, which is what system two is very dependent on is challenging and it's not without its uh, faults uh, as well and is certainly prone to error uh, for its own reasons. So neither process is perfect. And I think uh, when people look at this model and it, it, it has its flaws and it has its limitations, the real key in looking at it is understanding how those two systems interact uh, to come up with a reasoned or balanced approach to decision-making. And most people say nowadays looking at that model um, that it's not a matter of which one is better but how expert decision makers balance those two or are able to shift between the two processes or to be more accurate, you probably don't shift. You probably blend processes when required, uh, when the situation calls for it. So for example, you know, coming back to that renal colic situation, it's perfectly fine to use your judgment and experience uh, and prior knowledge to look at a patient and say, you know what, you've got renal colic. That's fine. The key seems to be then um, taking that rapid system one thinking and being able to alter it when the picture doesn't fit, when the picture is unfamiliar, when the presentation is atypical, or when something doesn't match up. So the example would be something like the patient also happens to have a cardiovascular history and they have a low blood pressure when you first assess them. So that balanced interaction might then make you say, okay, I mean, maybe I need to stop, take a step back, wonder why this patient's blood pressure is low. And then you get into that more of a system two process of what else could be going on here. How do I challenge that diagnosis? Do I need to do anything further before I end up at my sort of my management pathway, my diagnostic decision? What about the person who might say something like, well, all you need to do is gain more and more and more knowledge. I mean, the more and more you know about AAA ruptures, the more likely you are to pick it up. Mm -hmm. Isn't just knowing more going to make you a better doctor? Well, like G.I. Joe said, knowing is only half the battle. I think that's important to remember. Yes, having a bunch of knowledge matters, but knowledge plus experience, being able to recognize atypical features, uh, understanding um, situations that seem different from prior, drawing on past experiences, and then being able to reflect back on this with this sort of metacognitive approach where you're able to sort of critically analyze your own thinking. Um, 
that seems to be at least as or perhaps more important than the ability to just bring to bear uh, sort of factual knowledge of a case. So Dr. Himmel, on a personal level, you've had 40 years of experience and your knowledge base is bigger than anyone I know in emergency medicine. How does cognitive decision-making play into your practice? It's not what you know, it's what you use. Clearly, the more you know, the better off you are. Clearly, if you don't use it, knowledge is a waste. So it's what you know and what you use. Well, how do you use what you know? Well, you basically have to make a lot of mistakes. So that's where experience comes in. But people use the word experience far too readily. It's not experience. It's experience plus reflection. So you have experience, you make mistakes, you never learn from successes. When you're successful, you learn nothing. When you make a mistake, you may learn something. What have you learned? Well, you've learned you've got a problem either with your knowledge or the use of knowledge. So you can learn a few more things and how do you basically use your new knowledge? Well, we know that logical thinking, likelihood ratios, confidence intervals is very, very slow and effective. It's not gonna work well in the emergency department. So you've got to come up with better and better and better heuristics, better system one thinking. Now, let me give you a classical example of this. Back pain, constipation. So here's my heuristic for back pain. Could be your aorta, could be a fracture, could be cancer, it could be nothing significant. It could be an epidural abscess. That's my beginning heuristic. How about headaches? Have I got a heuristic for headaches? Yeah, I do actually. It's probably benign, but the six things you gotta rule out every single time in your brain. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, meningitis, verbal artery section, carotid artery section, cavernous sinus thrombosis, carbon monoxide poisoning, temporal arteritis. Now that's a heuristic. That is not systems two thinking, that's heuristic. It used to be systems two thinking, but I've taken my mistakes, which were many. I looked at it and said, how do I remember all that stuff? Well, I have to be a better thinker. Is systems two thinking gonna work? No, I've got a better heuristic. So where most of us go wrong is we go wrong with systems one thinking. And the problem isn't that our heuristics weren't used properly. Well, it could be a problem. The problem is our heuristics aren't good enough. So your experience is based on your mistakes. When you make a mistake, you get more knowledge. More knowledge isn't sufficient. You've got to use your knowledge. How do you use your knowledge? By getting better heuristics. And there's a lot of, obviously a lot of truth to what Walter just said. Uh, and in particular, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that over time, experts take stuff that used to be system two and make it system one. That is to say, things that used to be rote processes of deliberation and become a much more automatic and they get shoved into that system one category. Which is why I said earlier, you know, that it's likely more a blend of things rather than deciding which one, one is better than the other. So with 40 years of experience, Dr. Himmel has taken a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, a medical student would have to work hours and hours and hours very deliberately through uh, to come up with an answer and shift it into his sort of his, his, his automated process of decision making. And again, there's evidence to say that that's, that's very, that's very accurate. It's timely. Uh, it's effective. You know, we mentioned before heuristics and biases don't necessarily have to be bad things. 
uh, you can use them effectively to your advantage to make good decisions. Now, what else has experience taught me? Well, experience has taught me that we're all sinners and we all make mistakes. So here's the solution I come up with. I ask myself the following question with every diagnosis I come up with. What's the probability of a diagnosis? Is it 100%? No. Is it 90%? Yes. Next question, do I have to act now? If I have to act now, then I act. If I don't have to act now, I ask myself the next question. Where is the other 10%? In plain words, I come to realize opposites are true. Zebras are rare, but they exist. What's common is common, but what's rare occurs. So before I make a decision, I ask myself, what's the probability? I use the best heuristic I've come up with by using the mistakes that I've learned. And I ask myself, what else could it be? Now, in terms of cognitive biases, let me tell you what I do. I've learned from experience when I hear the word flank, the first thing I tell myself is the following. This is not their kidney. When I hear the word drug seeker, the first thing I tell myself is every diabetic is seeking insulin. (laughs) When I hear the word chest pain, I tell myself, hmm, ACS, pericarditis, pulmonary embolism, no more thorax, chest wall pain. So you're describing the cognitive forcing strategies. I use tons of cognitive forcing. In fact, I use it all the time. Now, I must say... Uh, the, the word experience is very, very important. It's experience plus reflection. Mm. If you don't reflect on your experience, your experience is a waste of time. It'll produce excessive amounts of confidence. If you don't take the reflection and come up with conclusions and make your heuristics richer and richer and richer, you will become more insecure and more ineffective. Your heuristics must improve over time. And then every time you finish your heuristic, you system two to ask yourself the following question, what else could it be? Could I be wrong? And I, I have learned to use that technique daily, and that technique has been my greatest personal discovery. So to sum up what we've discussed so far, the current view of the type 1 or system 1 versus type 2 or system 2 thinking model is that it's not a matter of whether type 2 is better than type 1, but rather how expert decision makers blend these two systems so that when the clinical picture appears inconsistent or atypical after the type 1 system has been applied to decision making, that's when the type 2 thinking plays an important role. Experts use not only their knowledge, but their experience and past errors or mistakes to reflect on them, and then they develop heuristics and cognitive forcing strategies that allow them to use their type 1 system for rapid decision-making rather than having to slow down using their type 2 system. As discussed in part 1 of this series of podcasts, Dr. Himmel suggests to take a probabilistic approach not only to diagnostic testing for a particular diagnosis, but also for the differential diagnosis, weighing the relative likelihood of a wide range of diagnoses from common to rare. Next, Dr. Hicks is going to give us a couple great examples of cognitive forcing strategies that he uses. So here's, a, here's an example of a forcing strategy I use all the time. You ever missed a um, trifascicular block? Probably. We probably all have. 
So if you're looking at ECG, a trifurcular block usually comes in context with what looks like a right bundle branch block, but there's a left axis deviation, and there's probably some element of first-degree block as well. Thing is, at first glance, when you look at an ECG, it just looks like a right bundle. And if you don't go any further, you might just look at that and say, that's a right bundle branch block, and that's the end of that. And that's fine. Uh, this is where M&M rounds fall down all the time because the, the point from an M&M rounds on missing a trifascicular block would probably be, well, don't miss trifascicular blocks anymore because they're important. Taking that a step further and going into sort of a cognitive analysis and a forcing strategy, the one that I use with that particular diagnosis is anytime I see a right bundle, I am very deliberate about looking at where the axis is pointing. And if it's pointing left, there's something else going on in addition to the right bundle. And so that happens every time now if I see a right bundle branch block. Another one would be uh, with every ankle injury I see, maybe you guys do this too, it doesn't matter what the nature of the injury is. And this is one of the principles of effective forcing strategies that has to be applied across situations as a matter of routine. Every ankle injury I see, I squeeze the proximal fibula because I don't want to miss a mesonuve injury. Even if I don't think it's terribly likely or, or probable, I do it anyway. It's part of my physical exam. And it has happened once or twice that I squeeze someone's proximal fib and they go, ouch. And then I get a different x-ray and I come up with a different management plan. So, I mean, the things about forcing strategies, there, is, there are some nuances to it. You know, Walter pointed out a bunch of important ones. Um, a lot of what he was alluding to, and this is really important when it comes down to it, is it has to be related to your own experience and your own practice. There are some that are just very generalizable, like rule out the worst case scenario sort of uh, heuristic or forcing strategy. Others, you have to have a sense of reflecting on your practice. As Walter already said, you have to look back at where you made mistakes and then you come up with specific strategies for those areas of deficiency. Yeah, so we've learned a big definition of experience, right? It's the capacity to make more and more mistakes with increasing confidence. <laughs> so I have one hint about how I've improved my ability to get feedback. And I'm not sure most people can do this, but here's what I do. I never bill my shift until three or four days after my shift. When I bill my shift, I tend to do the hospital. I go to power chart, and every patient that I bill, if there's any question in my mind, I review power chart and see what the x-ray showed and what the consultant's note was. And I can tell you at least two or three times a month, I have a massive surprise. <laughs> it's been one of my best learning strategies. The next thing I've done is I've changed my style of documentation. And this, once again, probably isn't relevant to most Canadian physicians. I now dictate a full consultation note in every patient I see, except maybe the most trivial sore throat. So here's the downside. It takes a lot of time. I'm st staying around my shift for at least an hour longer than I used to. Here are the benefits. The next doctor gets a much better concept of what happened. The clinic where the patient is referred to gets a better concept of what has happened. And it's a great cognitive strategy because as I'm dictating my chart and stating my assessment and my plan, I suddenly realized there's two or three things I hadn't considered. When I dictate the lab results into my microphone, I suddenly realized the hemoglobin was 85 and I didn't even see it. So dictating my charts has actually improved my clinical decision-making more than I could have imagined. And checking out how my patients has really helped. Now, there is a big downside. It takes more time. It has slowed me down somewhat, uh, but it's been very effective from educational process. 
Yeah, so I think what we're hearing from the the people around the table here is that everybody has to develop their own sort of strategies and how you incorporate your experience into into your own clinical practice. So there really isn't a one-size-fits-all recipe for how you go about cognitive debiasing or even how you approach the the idea of metacognition. And, you know, in terms of things that I do personally that uh, have sort of help me to, to de-bias. Um, I've sort of incorporated cognitive checkpoints into, into my clinical practice where I'll hit certain points in the management of a case where it's kind of a flag for me to stop and reconsider it. Uh, the chart to me is my ally. You know, Walter likes doing the, the dictated chart. I actually like a written chart because I find that I get my prompts and my cues from that chart. So, when I am starting to finish off that chart, and I always finish the chart before the patient actually leaves the department, I'm making sure that the chart shows internal congruence. And I think that's a, a, an important concept. So what there is on that chart that's written down for the history and the physical exam should be congruent with what I then chose to do for my investigations, how I interpreted those investigations, what I'm thinking the diagnosis is, and what I'm planning on for the treatment. And if there isn't that internal congruence, if there's disconfirming evidence that's in there, that's a prompt for me to stop, step back, think about this case again. What did I not think about in this case? What did I overvalue or undervalue in the, in the assessment of that? And a, a lot of us, I think, have gotten to the point where we can't write certain diagnoses on a chart with uh, without a little voice in your head going, really, are you sure you want to do that? You know, I can't, writing constipation on the chart of an 80-year-old is a, is a great example, or gastritis, or GERD, or, or that type of thing, because those are areas where we know that we can make errors, where they can mimic other much more serious conditions, and we need those prompts to be able to go back, step back, think about the things that we might have missed. Doesn't mean you have to investigate something, it means you have to at least think about it. So those are some great examples of cognitive checkpoint. We've talked about some great examples of cognitive forcing strategies. I want to talk about some of the biases we have with emotions, the so-called affective bias. We've all been there in front of that patient who's driving us absolutely crazy for whatever reason. How can we mitigate affective bias? Well, I think this is one area where your awareness makes a big difference. Understanding how you're reacting to a patient that's driving you nuts or a population of patients that you recognize you've had a hard time with in the past. You know, in the moment, it can be very difficult to not react negatively or poorly to say, I don't know, a patient. I had this just the other night with a patient's son who was pointing a finger in my face and saying, you know, I'm going to sue you if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And the discussion became very defensive. Uh, and I was getting close to just saying, well, okay, then you guys can just get out of here. And a little voice in my head said, no, that's not the right thing to do because there's still a patient right there that, that needs treatment. So, you know, that, that is one of those things where I think when you're aware of it in the moment, you can, you can mitigate it to a degree. The, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of important sort of system and hospital based initiatives that can help improve your emotional valence. Again, if you want to use a jargony phrase, basically to suggest that you're, you know, you're coming into the workplace in a good state of mind to make good decisions. And a lot of them come down, come down to stress management, workload management, decision density, 
fatigue, uh, mutual support with colleagues, those sorts of things. So if I can break those down, the notion of having overlapping uh, shift start times where you arrive, you know, an hour before you actually have to sign over. So you have some time to get acclimatized and oriented and your feet on the ground and a coffee in you before you have to do sign over. You know, there's some evidence suggests that that puts you in a better place to get an effective sign over, which is sort of a high risk period for patients. Uh, there's a lot of stuff around uh, uh, fatigue and decision making and, you know, the suggestion that when you're overtired, you're making about as good decisions as you make when you're drunk. And so things like splitting up overnights into casino shifts has been suggested time and time again to improve, uh, I guess, to, to mitigate to some extent the cognitive effects of being uh, dead tired during the, the key high risk periods around four or five in the morning. And during sign over the following morning, it kind of trumps both of those by bringing in fresh legs uh, halfway through the process. Stress and mutual support, um, the notion that you have multiple doctors working in a given department, that you support one another, that you can work together through a resuscitation. The, the single coverage department is is increasingly becoming a, a, a dying breed, and for good reason, I think. Not just is it a matter of patient flow, but it's a matter of patient safety to have, say, more than one doctor present at a resuscitation. So in talking about affective bias, there's this notion of decision fatigue that as we make more and more and more decisions, it becomes harder and harder to make those decisions. Dr. Dushansky, could you just tell us a little bit more about decision fatigue and how we can mitigate against it? Yeah, so as Chris has mentioned, we we talk a lot about fatigue in medicine. A lot of the time when we're talking about it, we're talking about things like physical fatigue and what the time of day is and, uh, and uh, how sleep-deprived you are and what the effects of those are on our decision-making capacity. But fatigue is not just just a function of those things or how many hours that you've actually been up or in the hospital. It also is a function of decision density. So how many decisions you're making within a certain time frame. And there really aren't very many other specialties in medicine where the decision density is as high as it is in emergency medicine. And the effect of this is, is that at some point you hit cognitive overload where it's just more difficult for you to incorporate all that information and to be more analytic about it, to be down in that system two or type two sort of thinking. And the further you get into your shift, probably the more likely it is that that starts to happen. So as you get later into the shift, the way you make decisions about a number of things what sort of tests that you're going to order, when you're going to make a referral, whether you're going to discharge a patient may be very different at the end of the shift than they are actually at the beginning of the shift. And it's quite complex. It's, it relates to fatigue. It also relates to cultural and societal things in the department that you're working in. What's the, what's the culture with handing patients over? Uh, what's the, the culture with waiting around for diagnostic tests and so forth? And this will really influence how you actually come up with the final decision on, on those patients. And there are some strategies for how you can do deal with that. As Chris has mentioned, some of them are sort of institutional where you can structure shifts a little bit better and arrange coverage so that uh, it's a little bit more of a, a supportive environment. And some of them are very individual. 
you have to be comfortable sometimes with uh, calling a friend, right, with asking for another opinion when you know that your decision-making capacity is starting to wane. And that's where the court or consult comes in. And there are all sorts of problems associated with that potentially as well. But it is one type of strategy that people can use to try and uh, compensate for the decision fatigue that we get later in the in our shifts. Which I think is probably underutilized. You know, often we're, for some reason, you know, we're cowboys or whatever it is that we don't want to ask for help from our colleagues. I've personally found that that can be invaluable when you've been working an entire shift or near the end of your shift and you're cognitively overloaded and you just ask a favor of a colleague, hey, can you just review this case and tell me what you think because my brain is fried at this point. Yeah, the, the culture absolutely can reward people who function very independently. And that's not always a positive thing. Sometimes it can be, but uh, we we have to be a, really aware of when that's a dysfunctional way to manage the department. So we've talked a bit about decision density, which is higher in EM than any other specialty and gets more and more difficult to manage as we get near the end of our shift as well as some strategies to mitigate decision fatigue, which are things like overlapping shifts, casino shifts, and developing a culture in your department where there's mutual support and feeling comfortable calling a friend when you need to. Next, we're going to shift gears a bit and talk a bit about anticipatory guidance, where having a well-communicated team plan can be hugely beneficial to mitigating medical error and strategies that can help in stressful situations, understanding the concept of preferred error, mental rehearsal, building resilience, and stress inoculation training. Decision density is an important concept, and it can relate also to resuscitation management as well. You know, there's good evidence to suggest that our brains just aren't designed to function well during critical events where you have to take in multiple points of potentially uh, unrelated information. Uh, and this comes uh, around to the point about how stress influences decision-making and, and human performance. And just very briefly, from evolu- from an evolutionary perspective, when you're stressed out, you know, back as a caveman, uh, usually you're stressed out because that saber-toothed tiger is about to eat you, and you want to be very task-focused on the notion of running away or fighting that saber-toothed tiger. It wouldn't make a lot of sense if your brain thought about fighting that saber-toothed tiger, but also then kind of drifted off to what the weather is going to be like later that day, because chances are you're going to forget how to fight and then you're going to die. So when we're stressed, we become, we become very task-focused, we become very tunneled down, uh, we become somewhat uh, less receptive to extraneous points of information. And the big driver of that is stress and time during critical events or very time-pressured events, very critical events like a trauma resuscitation, for example. The problem is, you know, a trauma is a great example. In a polytrauma patient, you have to be taking in constantly all sorts of extraneous bits of information. Well, the hemoglobin is low. The lactate turns out it's high. Uh, his arm looks like it's on backwards. The, the fast is positive. Sorry, did you hear me, doctor? The fast is positive. I don't know if you heard me. The fast is positive. I, we've all been in that situation where information is coming at you. And at a certain point, you become so decision overloaded, so cognitively burdened that those things just seem to bounce off of your head. You've probably had that experience with colleagues where you're trying to point something out to them and you just can't seem to reach through to them. And it's not because they're a bad doc or they're dumb. It's just they've reached that maximal point of cognitive burden. They can't accept anymore. 
uh, information and they certainly can't make a good decision uh, about anything other than what it is that they're focused on. And there's, again, there's also other stuff that goes along with it, like a lack of situation awareness and a lack of uh, task momentum and so on. So there are ways to mitigate that, the most obvious being the team approach. Um, there's a good suggestion that a high-performing team can mitigate, um, you know, an individual just doesn't bring enough cognitive resources to bear during a critical event to necessarily be able to handle it well. And working within a high-functioning team can mitigate that to a degree, plus the structures within a team, how you communicate, how you delegate, um, the ability to maintain situation awareness and so on. And having a second uh, physician present, um, you know, one is a command physician, one is, a, as I say, a sort of a co-pilot, uh, can be really, really effective in making sure that you're picking up on things, dividing tasks, dividing decision-making responsibilities. You sort of cognitively unburden yourself to a degree. So again, it, it, it can play out over the course of a shift or it can play out over the course of an individual resuscitation. In either case, it's important to recognize that human cognition has limits, we don't like to think we have a lot of those limits as docs. We like to think we can do everything and we can handle everything um, and we can think through everything. And the reality of the way our brains are wired is that we can't. And we need strategies to compensate for that when uh, the stuff starts to hit the fan. So I just want to talk a little bit about what situational awareness is. Simply put, situational awareness is knowing what's going on around you. And it includes three elements as outlined by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. The three elements are getting information, understanding the information, and thinking ahead. So let's just break those down. First, getting the information. Actively getting the information about the situation is important. Getting information involves being proactive about gathering important points by scanning and searching before the impending disaster occurs by expecting the unexpected, and by openly communicating your thoughts on the situation with your team and their family. Next is understanding the information. Assign meaning to the information that you've gathered by comparing the information to what you know and what you expected and critically assessing the information. Is it accurate? Is it complete? Is it relevant? And then thirdly, thinking ahead. Ask yourself, how will the situation unfold if the current condition persists? How long do I expect this to persist for? And ask yourself, what if? Consider various outcomes and contingencies and communicate those possibilities to your team. This situational awareness checklist will be available for your learning on the website and the written summary. Next, Dr. Hicks is going to talk about how to prepare mentally in stressful situations. In talking about decision-making during critical situations, I've read a lot about imagining the situation in your head before you actually go into that resuscitation. Can you suggest to our listeners how they might prepare for a resuscitation, for example, cognitively? Hmm. Well, I suppose there's a bunch of different ways. The notion of, of mental rehearsal comes to mind when you talk about preparation. And I think we've all probably a great, a great example of something that we would cognitively rehearse before we do it. We, we very often think of that in relation to a procedural skill. Um, we've all, I'm sure, thought a hundred times through the process of doing a surgical airway to the point where when it comes down to doing it, we've rehearsed the step so many times it almost becomes like a rote process of execution. First of all, in medicine, there's good evidence to suggest that when you think through procedures and you're mentally rehearse them, you perform them better. In fact, you improved to almost the same extent as actually doing them. So practicing things 
the process of psychophysical rehearsal in your mind can improve your performance and kind of going through that sort of elevator rehearsal five minutes before you undertake a given task. For team-based stuff, it's a little bit less clear. And we're just kind of starting to look at this now. Um, what effect does sort of cognitively rehearsing um, your approach to say a resuscitation from the non-technical side of things, how you're going to manage your team, how you're going to delegate resources and so on. We're starting to get some suggestion that uh, there probably is some benefit to that. I can, a practical example of that is again in trauma resuscitation, many of you may have had this circumstance where you get an EMS pre-alert that a patient is going to come and you get a sort of list of a mechanism and maybe some injuries. And then you're sitting there with your team and you have five minutes to think about it. I'd argue that sort of preparation time is extremely important in trying to set people up for what's about to happen, particularly if it's a trauma arrest or something like that, where things have to move quite quickly. So going through that cognitive exercise, what I like to do with my team is, okay, so this was a a driver who was going through an intersection was T-boned on the driver's side, you know, at a high speed. So what sort of injuries are we expecting? Okay, left-sided injuries, head, chest, belly. Think about the spleen, likelihood of a chest tube. What sort of resuscitative measures might we undertake early? And then let's actually go through the process of organizing those steps and assigning those roles in advance so that when the patient actually gets there, um, you have the chest tube tray on the patient's left side. You have somebody who's already been made responsible for that procedure. They understand what it is they're going to do and when. Somebody's in charge of airway. We're already thinking that maybe the patient has a splenic lack, and so we're going to do a fast and keep that in mind in our in our assessment and so on. I found that's an incredibly powerful preparatory tool for resuscitation. It doesn't have to be a long exercise. If you ever have a chance when you get two or three minutes before an ambulance arrives and you've got two or three sentences uh, from the EMS prompt on what's coming, Take some time to actually talk it over with your team. Talk. It doesn't have to be a big team. It can be your nurses and, a, and yourself or your nurses and a learner or a colleague and talk about what you're expecting, what you anticipate, and take some time to sort of carve out roles and expectations. Because, man, I've had cases where a trauma arrest arrives uh, and we've had five minutes to prepare um, and everything just moves so smoothly when people have an expectation of what's coming and they have an expectation or, or an idea of their roles. So not only are expectations and roles really important, but coming back to the mental rehearsal, since we've done this recording, there has been some literature published that gives credence to the idea that mental rehearsal can enhance team-based resuscitation. In fact, a paper that Dr. Hicks co-authored was published in CGEM called Mental Practice, a Simple Tool to Enhance Team-Based Trauma Resuscitation. It showed that, at least in high-fidelity simulation environments, EM and surgery resident teams who employed 20 minutes of mental rehearsal where they visualized a trauma scenario and how they would function in a team while reviewing a script that contained key visual, cognitive, and kinesthetic cues, they performed better in a trauma resuscitation as measured by a validated performance scale compared to the control group who received 20 minutes of ATLS training. So again, preparation, whether it involves a group huddle where tasks are assigned and potential injuries, diagnoses, and treatments are predicted, or mentally rehearsing your performance before it actually happens, they can both be very useful in stressful situations in the ED. Next, Dr. Hicks is going to talk about how the experts, when they prepare for a big resuscitation, how they prepare for the logistics that they'll anticipate they'll have to face rather than just a general strategy for the resuscitation. I think it was Scott Weingart who talked about logistics versus strategy. I don't know if you've heard his um, discussion on that. talks about how novices talk strategy and experts talk logistics. So if you're an expert thinker, you're thinking beyond just, you know, 
what's your approach. It's how you're going to actually make it happen. And so I, I, that's a, th- a thought that goes through my mind when I'm preparing for a resuscitation in my head. What are the actual steps? How am I going to affect uh, the intervention that I want to undertake. For example, uh, we're getting a patient who's got um, an abdominal injury and a pelvic fracture. And how do I actually start to prepare and plan mentally for the steps that I'm going to have to undertake here in the emergency department? Uh, and then beyond that, is this a patient that's going to need the OR? Should I start planning for that? Is this a patient that's going to need the angio suite? What time of day is it? Is that even possible at this time of day? If it's not, what are my secondary options? A more common or more practical example would be your approach to airway sort of sitting there and thinking through the not only your plan A, but your plan B and C and D and kind of rehearsing those in your mind, having a sense of if X, then Y. The other thing that I would suggest that's really powerful is never underestimate the power of actually saying what it is that you're thinking or anticipating to your team. I don't know if you've ever seen a team that kind of seems disjointed or people are pulling in different directions. You can't really get, nobody really seems to be working cohesively. I guess my somewhat limited experience has taught me that when that happens, it's it's often because people don't see the situation in the same way you do. And you've made the assumption that your team kind of sees the process uh, exactly as you do and you're wrong about that. So never underestimate the power of saying to your team, okay, everybody, this patient is in septic shock. And it, it can really be as simple as that. Or I, be, I believe this patient has got a massive GI bleed. That can be an incredibly powerful and unifying declaration to make to your team. So everyone kind of gets on the same page. And going a step beyond that, making statements that declare what you anticipate is going to happen can be very powerful as well. So I've said things like, gosh, this patient is really, really sick. We're going to intubate them now. But honestly, let's be prepared post-intubation to have them deteriorate in arrest because that's a very real possibility. And that can be a very par- powerful statement because then when it happens, your team has a sense of not not only just practically, maybe they brought the recess cart to the to the edge of the bed and they've made some preparations, but cognitively, they're set for that possibility. It's not a surprise when it happens. It's not chaotic when it happens. So saying things like, I anticipate this patient is going to get worse, or let's give this drug, but let's have a good sense of what we're going to do if it fails, um, really sets your team up to understand the processes and next steps, as opposed to being completely reactionary. And I find that it's when you're sort of just reacting to things in the moment, uh, without a plan, that's when things can kind of go off the rails. I think that that sort of concept, even well, well, it certainly applies in the in the critical resuscitation scenario and the very acute patient. It's even applicable outside of that for our regular run of the mill patients as well. The idea of anticipatory guidance and communication between the team members is really important. Uh, I think all too often docs will go and see a patient and then they'll drop a chart on the nurse's desk and kind of turn around and walk away. Uh, I've developed the strategy where every time I've gone and seen a patient and I brought the chart back to the nursing station, I tell the nurse what it was, what it is I'm thinking about and what it is I'm planning to do from there. And sometimes even a step further, what I think the likely disposition is going to be from the, for the patient at that point. Partly that's because my handwriting is terrible and they can't read anything on the chart, but it is also a good thing to get everybody in on the same page. And I tell the patients the same thing too, so that they have some guidance as to what the plan is, where we're going with it, and what they can expect over the course of the next short period of time. So in talking about the critically ill patient, whether we should be intervening or not, and and our level of risk aversion, Ruben Strayer, the brains behind the fantastic EM Updates blog, coined the term preferred error. Dr. Dushensky, 
Can you explain to our listeners what preferred error is and how it can be useful in our decision making? So this is a great concept that came out of an opinion piece from Scott Weingart on AmCrit that basically sort of put forth the question as to whether or not emergency physicians and trainees have become too reluctant to act or provide maximally aggressive care to their patients. And I think there's a lot to debate around that with respect to mental toughness and other sorts of issues. But one of the really interesting ideas that came out of this is the concept of the preferred error. And this is where one looks at the equation of which will result in greater harm and or risk. Is it the sin of commission where we do something and that turns out to be wrong or the sin of omission where we don't do something and that turns out to be wrong? In a way, this relates back to the idea of test threshold, except here we're talking really about a treatment threshold. And the way we evaluate this equation is really heavily dependent on context. So while in general we may trend towards over-testing and over-treating for the average ED patient, it's also been felt that we may trend towards under-resuscitating the actually sick ones. And I think this is affected significantly by the prevalence of high-risk acute illness. So Scott Weingart is an ED intensivist, and he spends a lot of his time looking after really sick patients. And we work in large centers, but uh, you know most of us really only end up admitting about 15% of our patients. That means that for us, the correct preference most of the time probably falls towards being less aggressive. Whereas if you work in a Scott Weingart type of environment, the correct preference probably falls more towards the side of being aggressive. I think that the key here is being able to shift gears and not being afraid to be maximally aggressive in the sicker patient where the risk of not doing so is truly important. There, the preference tends to fall on the side of commission or acting. So to phrase it differently, you really have to sort of be able to look at it from the future backwards. So if I have a patient who I think is septic and they look like they're tiring and the blood pressure is starting to trend down despite fluids, I've got a choice to make. I can intubate and put in a line and start pressors, or I can wait and see how they respond to more fluids and starting antibiotics. The adverse consequence of acting and doing something is the assorted complications of intubation and a line and pressors. Those are real but they may be relatively small compared with the potential consequences of not doing something. There, the patient may get worse, and you have to do all those same things as before, but now in a crash fashion, which is more difficult, or the patient actually arrests or dies or suffers some form of irreversible sequelae, which is a lot of harm compared to the risks of the interventions. The key is incorporating the likelihood that the action or inaction is the right thing to do. If the patient's truly septic, it's more likely that they will need the maximally aggressive care. So this is just fine-tuning of the decision-making process by context. Consider the consequences of being wrong on both sides of the decision and determine which course of action potentially fails better for the patient in front of you. I think there's no doubt we tend to over-investigate when it's unnecessary, and we tend to underact when it may be absolutely necessary. And the reason I believe is the following. 
where we tend to overact is areas where, where we are completely familiar and comfortable. Where we tend not to act is areas where we're unfamiliar and uncomfortable. So it's a matter of toughness. Well, Scott did give a talk where he thought we weren't tough enough. I said, well, there's two kinds of tough people. There's a tough people who know what they're doing and tough people who don't know what they're doing. And it's a very different kind of toughness. So what do you do? Well, number one, recognize that there are situations you are not all that comfortable with. Secondly, ask yourself the most important question in those situations. If I do nothing, if I now choose to perform an error of omission what is the most likely outcome in the next two minutes or five minutes? Now, I think in emergency medicine, there's probably five or 10 or 15 situations where these questions come up. In situations you've got to be tough, uh, your only hope really is to think about them in advance, rehearse them in your mind, and recognize occasionally you haven't thought about it in advance, you haven't rehearsed it in your mind, and that's the question we have to act now if I don't know what will happen. And if what's going to happen is going to be death or impending disaster, you haven't got a clue what to do, well, then you can't do anything. If a few things come to mind, then you make a decision. And if you're really lucky, you've got a colleague with you. So the question I ask myself is this, if I don't know what to do, if I knew what I was going to do, what should I do? That's a bizarre question. I don't know what to do, but if I knew what would I do, and I can usually come up with a, with a decision or two, and I simply have to make a decision to act. Now, I tell you what I do, but different from Scott. If I'm about to do something, I haven't got a clue how to do it, not a clue, and I can't even visualize it, I'm probably not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's an important point. When we talk about mental toughness, you know, you, we border on this, on the notion of being a cowboy or doing stupid stuff that maybe you're not really prepared to do. I think another question you need to ask yourselves or yourself in a situation like that is if the patient needs something and I can't provide it, is there somebody else who can? And then don't be afraid to call that person because again, we get in this, we can often get in a situation where we're reluctant to call for help when really what we need is a colleague or a consultant or someone, you know, I really believe in protecting resuscitations in the emergency department. And I believe that we are the best equipped to handle these sick patients. And I think all of that's true, but I also believe there are times when we need to call for help and we need the hands of a surgeon or an intensivist or someone else uh, to help out with decision-making. Um, so yeah, you don't want to get too far into the, to the notion of, of being a cowboy. I like the I like this sense of resilience training more than toughness because I think we need to train to be resilient in these situations and to maintain some of our faculties and some of our ability to intervene and act and to think through complex problems despite the fact that we're stressed and despite the fact that you haven't seen a pediatric arrest in 10 years which would be a situation for me we don't see a lot of kids at our place or you know to do a surgical airway or not in a patient who's going to die if you don't do it um and that, to me, that's, that, that conjures up notions of resilience and being resilient in the face of a really difficult situation. There are strategies for that, and I don't think there's really any substitute for experience, uh, which Walter has and I don't. But I think it's an important and probably forgotten part of training. I think the assumption is that over time you acquire these skills, but again, I'd argue that's probably not true for everybody. So how do you acquire the skills of resilience, Dr. Hicks? Well, there's a, there's, there's a, a few approaches. The one that I'll declare my bias here because we're kind of investigating it right now. Um, there's this notion of stress inoculation training. 
uh, and it's just borrowed from cognitive psychology, the same notion that will inocul- inoculate you to a phobia of a spider by a process of gradual desensitization. You can teach people skills that will help them maintain poise and and calm and analytic thinking in a crisis situation. I mean, another way to phrase it, would it's kind of like mindfulness therapy or awareness therapy. You know, we've heard people say this before. The first thing during an arrest, the first thing to do is check your own pulse, not the patient's. Um, it's a more formal process of that where you go through a stepwise or iterative process uh, of becoming more and more aware and by process of awareness, more and more desensitized to the impact of stress on performance. Stress inoculation training is just a particular version of that where you go through a very stepwise process. We're doing it in the simulator where you take people through increasingly stressful situations. And then during each time when you debrief those situations, you are, by way of, I'm working with a psychologist on this, you impart on them or you debrief them and hopefully impart on them more and more uh, advanced skills for managing stress uh, and then mitigating the impacts of stress on performance. Very cool. Can you give us a specific example of a simulation you might run and then what kind of things you might tell the learner to help them improve their skills? We have a scenario that we run where uh, it's a uh, an actor as a police officer has taken down a patient in the hallway and handcuffed himself to that patient because he believes the patient's a criminal and he's going to do bad stuff. And under no circumstances will he unhandcuff himself from the patient. He just won't do it. And he's a belligerent a-hole of a, of a guy who just won't listen to what anyone says. The patient has stuffed a crack rock down their throat and is now in a cardiac arrest. And the team recognizes this and the, the police officer doesn't and he's being very intrusive and he's being really jerky and annoying. Um, and the team, you can argue this actually, the team has to convince him to unhandcuff himself so they can defibrillate. Uh, and that's the whole point of the exercise. Invariably, when you ask the group uh, during the debriefing session, what was your goal? Uh, in dealing with a police officer, they say it was to get to the officer to unhandcuff himself. And we always point out, no, it isn't. Your goal was to defibrillate the patient. The means by which you do that is the process of getting the officer to unhandcuff himself or step away from the patient for a brief period of time. And then we talk about the strategies that would have led to that happening. And there were a couple of compromises that could come up during the situation. So the debriefing point is you never get the... um, the means by which you do something confused with the end result that you're trying to achieve. In this case, people invariably get it confused that they're trying to get the officer to, to sort of go away. And really what they're, what they really need to do is treat the patient. Well, the Harvard business review did a uh, big topic on resilience. And apparently there's three steps to resilience. Step number one, have an accurate understanding of what's going on. Step number two, you must give it meaning or purpose. And step number three, you must be prepared to do whatever it takes, regardless of the outcome, success, or failure. So I would say step number one is the most important step. You've got to have a very accurate concept of the situation you're facing. So that's the matter of being totally honest with yourself. And that's very, very tied into cognitive strategies to prevent yourself from cognitive bias. Well, there you have it. Dr. Himmel beautifully brings it back to everything we talked about in episode 11 on cognitive decision-making and medical error and episode 62 on diagnostic decision-making and EBM. Knowing yourself, understanding your biases, understanding the proper application of EBM, understanding the system that you work in, 
having situational awareness, and then using that understanding to create your own cognitive debiasing strategies, provide anticipatory guidance, and build resilience. These are all key in making you a better emergency provider. And with that, I'll leave you with the quote of the month from the great Canadian physician, William Osler. The value of experience is not in seeing much, but is in seeing wisely. So until next time, take it easy.